Mental Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me once again is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. We've talked a lot on this show about consciousness, especially the mind-body problem. It seems that over the course of history, philosophers have come up with a nearly endless number of theories and attempts to explain subjective experience. Today, we'll look at another one of these theories and its implications for how we perceive the world. In fact, this theory posits that how we perceive the world may be, in truth, the only factor in our actions. Prepare for a look at epiphenomenalism. All right, Norm, welcome back. It's been Thank a while. Um, and I've really enjoyed I've enjoyed what you've been doing with the other fellows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely been a long road, and, um, you know, we've... I've done a lot of different things and we've uh we've both been uh doing our own thing and uh, yeah. now we're now we're back. We're so back. <laughs> I'm I'm excited. <laughs> so um we're going to take a look at something that you and I were talking about while you were out, which is um epiphenomenalism. I read a pretty cool article that I forwarded to you about it. Yeah. yeah. And um I think listeners will see that there's you know, some similarities between this and some of the other things we've talked about, but it is its own flavor of um, the mind-body problem, right? It, it is. That's what makes it interesting to me is, you know, it's essentially Cartesian uh, in, in rootedness, but then it essentially flares up again in the uh, mid-later 1800s uh, with people like William James, who was a major American figure in intellectual work and and then into the into our own century with uh aj era and uh chalmers and so on so it it sort of cycles yeah yeah so what is epiphenomenalism in a nutshell we'll start with the the kind of traditional right um it's the idea that there's a kind of con game going on in our had such that uh, epiphenomenalism says that the body, the physical body, uh, can cause mental states. But the mental states can't cause anything in the physical body. So there's a one-way causation chain. Which is counterintuitive, which itself is a funny word to use for this, uh, to, to, uh, because of course, and we'll get to that, that one wants to argue, well, of course my mental state can cause a change. But, but the epiphenomenalists say no, that's just a, a game that is being played inside, that the body does this, that, that, that the mind essentially, how do I, <laughs> The mind is kind of a, 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 a stack on top of the work of the body. Um, if I want to grab a pop cultural reference, let's say that the Tower of Sauron, and then you've got the eye up there looking around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because what they're saying is you have the environment, you have what's going on around you, and then you have senses – so you perceive what's going on, and then your brain is sort of automatically reacting to this environment and giving you an output. And then your mind 
it's not an illusion in this case. That's a different type of right. philosophical um, conundrum. But So your mind is there, but the only thing it's really doing is observing the actions that your physical brain is taking in response to your environment. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, that's, that's kind of a crazy thought. And um, some people might have some problems with that. I, I had a little bit of a hard time wrapping yeah, my head so around it. We've been talking about the mind-body problem for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess a question I would have about it right off the bat is, is epiphenomenalism a form of determinism? Hmm. Well, that, as, as you have read, that's, that is in the discussion because the ultimately one of the counter-arguments is that very thing that that epiphenomenalism would require that everything is predetermined by the body itself it's kind of a materialist mix in there so that no matter what you think or what you think you're thinking um, your body's just going to do what the body's going to do that's oversimplified, but that's really yeah. Cool. So in that in that case, if you had a thought experiment, right, where um, you had a person in an identical environment and they were exposed to an identical stimulus, would they always have the same response? Now this and this gets tricky because here's the thing: is you can't have you can't have a different prior history. So in other words, right. You'd expose them to that response, right? If you expose me to a stimulus right now and I had a certain response, it's not like you'd have the same environment, same response again, because I've already been exposed to it. But if I was exposed to it, you wipe that memory, you wipe that five seconds or whatever, then you play it again. Would I have the exact same response? Well, that's the debate. And and we really can't know that. Yeah. <laughs> this is where it's this is where it, that, that one of the the side arguments against epiphenomenalism has been that it's because essentially it's all a mind experiment of a kind a thought problem that you you lock the individual into the idea that it's just the individual. Mm-hmm. So I see red. I say I see red. But I don't check that against any exterior uh, rubric. Mm-hmm. So what's red to me is red to me, and therefore it becomes almost a relativistic kind of thing. There's no way to check it. There's no way to counter check it. It would. There's. Uh, <laughs> I think about uh, there was an example of, of, that I've read of. Let's suppose you were trying to figure out a bus schedule, and you're doing it entirely from memory, and 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 so you say, well, I think the bus uh, arrives at at nine a.m. But instead of consulting a schedule, you say, well, did it arrive nine a.m. the last time? Yeah, I think it's arrived nine a.m. three weeks in a row on this particular day. And then so it begins less and less. It's just locked into itself. Right. Yeah. Huh. So when did epiphenomenalism form as a theory? When when did people start thinking about this? Well, well, the name uh, comes, I believe, from uh, coined by William James. Uh, 
in the 1880s or 1890s. 1890, I think. And, and, and the root that, that he developed is called epiphenomenon. And this is a, a medical, I can read off the definition to you, this is a, a medical term. It, it had to do with uh, the medical world. So an epiphenomenon, uh, according to James, is a secondary effect or a byproduct that arises from but does not causally influence a process. So you can be in the hospital, and uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a secondary symptom, and it can be misread as actually causing the problem when it's not. Right. So that's the, that's the root of the actual term. And there's there's some interesting um, there's a case study done by Huxley, right, where he had a French soldier who took a bullet to the brain, and um, every couple weeks this guy would get up and he'd smoke and he'd dress himself and he'd hold a cane like a rifle. Yep. And uh, but he was completely un in unresponsive to any sort of outside stimulus, right? Mm -hmm. And so. Huxley took this as a support for epiphenomenalism, saying, okay, well, here's this guy, and he seems to be, at certain times, completely devoid of um, the faculties of the mind. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of those faculties, the brain and the body are continuing to act like normal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... It's kind of a, of, of a term that a lot of people know as muscle memory. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing, but it's kind of like that. You're, you you might find yourself doing something out of because you've done it so many times, you just know how to do it. Uh, the, the people with Alzheimer's who can still play a piano, right? Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, or I think that another one they were talking about was um, if they lobotomized a frog and threw it in water, it would swim. That's right. Sort of thing, right? Right. Right. So, so I mean, they were thinking about this, and I mean, I think that. You know, probably they were thinking about this all the way back in in ancient Greece. You know, with, with some of the some of those guys too. But it wasn't articulated. It wasn't formed as a theory until well, until Car Descartes yeah, was talking right. about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You think, therefore, you are. That opens up a whole can of worms. <laughs> so now there was some changes after the original theory came about. Um, what were some of the things that that got refined during the age of materialism? <sighs> As you know, it's rather almost a cliche or a trope now, but it still holds. As imaging, as the technology uh, by which to measure and to look into how the body is functioning, functioning advanced, then the epiphenomenalists had some material that they could work with. And of course, people counter-argued back. But to be able to say, and this, and Daniel Dennett, for instance, is not an epiphenomenalist. He was quite the opposite. But uh, but the epiphenomenalists used that. And said, well, look, if you see that there's a brain activity and it's right there on the chart, there's a color change or whatever the measure is, then it's pretty clear to them that it's, all in the body. It's all in the physical anatomy, the structure of the machine. Hmm. Um, 
But the epiphenomenalists still would argue but that motion. Let's say that we take the case that you talked about, the, the gentleman who would get up and read and even write and aim the cane and, and so on. That the epiphenomenalists would, some did say that those actions, that writing by a person who seems to have no mind at all, could have had an echo into the mind. But the mind didn't make the person do that. So that, that part hasn't, to my knowledge, changed enormously. Yeah, I think, I think it was Dennett who said it, but it might have been somebody else. They said the only way that you could really disprove epiphenomenalism is if you had somebody and you could trace the neuronal processing of the brain and you could see that as they were talking about um, conscious behavior, mm -hmm. there was an actual um, spike related to consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And that seems like a weird, you know, I'm sure listeners at home are like, well, why does that, why would that be? Like, what's the connection yeah, Exactly. Here? So in order to think about that, I mean, what we're talking about with like falsifying epiphenomenalism is um, you have the the biggest argument against it, right, is that we're aware of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that has been stated by many, many fine minds, right? Exactly. I'm channeling my inner Mary Midgley at the moment, which is just taking things as they are, yeah, right? Just to, sort of, <laughs> just to sort of slap you in the face and say, what are you thinking, right? Like, you're overthinking okay. this. So, um, so I'm sitting here. This is not, not my grand test, but it's just one test. I, you, I can't prove to you that I'm doing this, but in my head I'm saying, lift your left arm. Mm -hmm. And I'm choosing not to. At the, but a moment ago when I was talking to you, and I often get animated when I was, I'm talking, my hand is moving. Why would my right hand be, be moving animatedly when I'm saying something? It's, it's my, there's a... Uh, Kinesiology is in this, uh, the, the motoring of the motor works of the body and, and what that might have in kinesics about uh, what is it trying to communicate. But I could see someone saying, look, your hand's moving and you're not even making it <laughs> move. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's <laughs> the interesting thing about epiphenomenalism, right, is the actual argument of it. Where it's weird is most of the time when we're looking at these philosophical arguments, you're saying, okay, there's these convincing, you know, these convincing cases for them. Yep. And then there's these sort of um, arguments against them that show little, little weaknesses in them, you know, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. the, the consensus ends up being, well, maybe it's good for something and not good for others or, you know, maybe this, that. Epiphenomenalism is weird, right? Because you have this really strong evidence for it and you have this really strong evidence against it like yeah. you know people it seems like it's really easy to to kind of prove it and disprove it at the same time in some regards and so when you're looking at cases for it like that like you were saying as medical technology and things have increased you know people look at okay well they ask somebody to make a decision and they see that in some cases, up to two or three seconds before they actually make a decision, the brain is already 
working, right? Mm -hmm. So before they've consciously decided that they're going to make a decision, the brain has already put into motion what they're going to do. Or um, like we were just talking about with the the falsifiability experiment, um, you know, really, since there's no um, way to sort of explain the qualitative experience of consciousness, the only way you could really disprove epiphenomenalism is if you had somebody talking about how they're consciously thinking something, and then you had a distinct brain pattern that you could trace to consciousness, you know, <laughs> which we're incapable of doing. We're, yeah, we're, 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 we're not there yet. And I'm, I'm kind of, this will seem retrograde, but I, I'm kind of hoping we don't quite get there yet. Yeah, I, I because we're talking about the brain and the mind again, mm-hmm. and, and we, even though we use the terms mind, I'm not in my mind, or he's out of his mind, or whatever it happens to be, uh, we really can't prove that there is one in our in our truth. Right. Now we have, but we have the language, and people might say, "Well, but the language is a secondary proof. We wouldn't talk about it if it weren't there." Uh, but but the. Uh, I, I I struggle to find. This is going to seem like low here, but I struggle to find terribly useful applications of epiphenomenalism to the broader attempt to understand the mind. I mean, I, it, mm-hmm. it 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 causes us to ask these questions, which is which is fine. I, I don't think it leads us, and it and it can lead to the argument that I still would counter, which is that there is no choice. If our brain, which is the meat, is still making the meat and the bones of the body do the things that they're doing so fast that we wonder where that came from, but it's still just the machine, then, as many have argued, then the mind is just an illusion. It's just a pretend. Why have a pretend? Why aren't we just zombies, <laughs> you know, reproducing and and going out? Well, I suppose culturally we, can <laughs> 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 hmm, let's <laughs> we could go there, but <laughs> yeah. So, so that's a really interesting question, right? Which is, could the brain still have some type of willpower? if the epiphenomenalist mind is an illusion, right? So is the meat machine just running a script? Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be the, the, the line that yeah, we take with this. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to make that um, sort of a, a dichotomous argument, but I'm, I'm trying to get at is there room for any nuance there, right? So let's say, let's take an epiphenomenologist viewpoint, right? Okay. So the mind doesn't affect behavior at all. It's it's just some sort of weird byproduct. It can right? be affected by behavior, but it doesn't affect behavior. Yes, yeah. So it's just a weird byproduct of, of life, being human. Um, so then the question is, is the brain, right? This in wildly complex... Um, intricate calculating device. 
does it have room to make decisions other than automatic responses? That's the question. You know, that is a fine question. So, you know, if we were just zombies, right? So if you have this, this guy, our, our test subject, the French soldier, you know, when he's doing the things that he's doing, right? He's not, he can't witness any pain. He's not, he's not reacting to anything in the outside world. He's just doing his thing. Does that brain choose to sit down and write? Or is it sitting down and writing in response to some sort of environmental stimuli? This this takes us, uh, to me, oddly over, well, not so oddly, over to the, our conversations about dreams. Hmm. And the ins, intangible, uns, insubstantial nature of dreams. We have a dream about running. Our leg kicks. Well, if it's the mind involved, then that puts epiphenomenalism down. <laughs> okay, but if it's if it's the brain originating the dreaming, and 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 we dream that we're uh, kicking at a, a monster coming at us, and our left foot kicks out, well, the epiphenomenalist would say there, <laughs> you see, the brain made that do that. Uh, Toward what end? And I think that's where the really, for me, uh, that's the interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I, no, I, you're absolutely right. Dreams are are a great um, are a great example. And as a matter of fact, I was reading an article this week. I think the headline of it was um, "Reoccurring dreams are incredibly are much more complex than than we ever imagined," or something along those lines. Yes, right? yes. And yeah, are. it does raise that question, right? Because that it, it gets to the heart of that question, which is that. What's the purpose of dreaming, right? If if dreaming is is a mind generated thing, it has a different purpose than if it's a brain generated thing, you know. And so, if you have a, a reoccurring dream and it's it's brain generated, it's probably your brain saying, "Okay, here is some thing that we've experienced in waking life, um, and we need to know how to respond to that scenario if it happens to arise again." Whereas if it's if it's a mind dreaming, right, it can be there can be any number of reasons that you're you're dreaming about these sorts of things. You know, you could have it comes back to the qualia, right? You know, yeah. yeah. So a, do I smell? Do I hear? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I have a reoccurring dream, right? Every probably once a month or so, I have this dream that I'm at my grandparents' house. It's Thanksgiving, and this was something that happened every year. You know, the parents are downstairs watching football. All the cousin, little cousins are upstairs watching Home Alone. And, um, you know, you have people scattered throughout the house, eating, playing cards, doing all the different things. So as all this is going on, right, I, I go upstairs into my grandparents' house and I find some door that wasn't there in real life. And I go, hey, I've mm -hmm. never noticed this door before. Yeah. And I open it up and there's a different room. And... That's where the dream diverges, right? I'm never exploring the same room over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's always a different thing. Sometimes it's this cavernous complex. Sometimes it's just this little space. You know, sometimes it's a maze type thing. But the dream always starts out the same, right? I'm in my grandparents' house at Thanksgiving. So, you know, in thinking about that, so if that's a brain-generated thing, what is, what is the, um, what's the meat machine trying to say about that? What, what is... What's the takeaway for that from an epiphenomenalist viewpoint versus 
if it's a mind dreaming, it could be nostalgia or you know any number of qualitative experiences that are that are stimulating. That are stimulating. I, 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 I admit, I, I, I have struggled with this. I still struggle with the, this one-way causality kind of thing because that's not seemingly true to my perceived experience. And I'm saying those things because, you know, people would be countering me. The, the big guns would be saying, yeah, you just don't understand. Well, mm -hmm. if you did, you know that it was just all an illusion and, and, and. Yeah, and then I say, toward what end again? And so we get in that loop. But if I, going back to what we said before, uh, to me, and, and maybe my mind is tricking me, maybe my body is tricking me through my illusory mind. Okay, but I can choose to close my hand. Well, if I have a debility of some kind, a, a debility, uh, you know, if, if I've hurt my hand and the physical therapist is saying, close that hand, close that hand. And I can't. That's an interesting problem because the body's not doing what the, and then we have uh, uh, millions of permutations on that in the medical world. The body will not do what I'm telling it to. And that makes me angry. Right. <laughs> or, yeah. or, yeah, that's, uh, not just elderly people. But no, yeah. People the, go through this. Yeah, I'm thinking a phantom limb, right? Because yeah. that, a phantom limb phenomenon seems to hint at a um a cognitive dissonance between the mind and the brain which would be the mind directly influencing behavior right if but i mean you i guess you could make the epiphenomenologist argument that it's really just conditioning right your your brain is conditioned to expect a hand to be here and now it's not there and that's where the issue arises and it's affecting the mind, but that mind is not affecting the brain in that scenario. But. Yeah, and and that and and staying with that for me, when I think of because it's it's been a it's been a summer of many different medical things for people that I care about it, and if uh, you 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 are uh, not confronted by but uh, uh, counseled by doctors that uh, if you don't do a procedure then you're in great peril. <laughs> and, and if it were just the body uh, echoing back into the mind, uh, then you might not even gone to the doctor in the first place. And if you're told that you're at peril if you don't this, and you, and you say, and you decide, I'm of a certain age, I'm not going to do this. I, I will not accept this treatment, or I'm going to do this treatment. I know it's going to be harsh and awful. The body, it'd be hard-pressed for me to, to argue that the body made that decision. Yeah. Yeah, that comes back to that that question that I asked, which yeah. is, the, it, does the brain have willpower, right? Because yeah. like you're talking about, if if you're an older person, right, and you have an advanced stage cancer and you have the option of getting treatment or of, of just going down that path, you know, yeah. if there's a mind, then it's pretty obvious what's happening. You're making a decision, right? If there's no mind, then you sort of, you know, 
then the question becomes, if you take the mind out of the scenario, the question is, okay, so is the brain automatically, the brain would have chose what path to take regardless because of the stimuli it's receiving, right? Maybe somewhere deep in your subconscious brain, your your brain realizes by regulating your your bodily systems that whatever is going on is beyond repair. And so we might as well just shut down. Hmm. Or okay, what's going on can be repaired, so we're going to go down this road. But I guess what's interesting is like, is that an automatic decision by the brain or is your brain subconsciously putting together information and choosing irregardless of the mind? You know, it's a really yeah. strange thing to consider. It, 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 it is a strange thing to consider. And, that, and that's why thus to this point, to this moment, it's not solvable. It's it's not viable for many reasons for many of us. But it's it's if it's it may be insoluble, but it, it maybe not. But it hasn't been yet. William James of the, to go back to him since he coined that that word. He his big objection to epiphenomenalism, um, because he was actually. Uh, Thinking about uh, with uh, f- from the viewpoint of phenomenalism, not epi, but then he was going there with the thought: epiphenomenalism cannot account for the familiar fact that what we find pleasurable is typically good for us, and what we find painful is typically bad for us. Because the, you'd do the thing, and then you'd find it pleasurable, but your body would do the thing first. But if you say, oh, well, that that was good, uh, let's do that again. Well, if epiphenomenalism works, the body doesn't listen necessarily to that. Hey, take me. <laughs> you know, there, there's, a, there's a thing emerging in my head at this moment that's probably a, a little nuts, but it's all, I'll, I'll try it. Let's try it out. That's what we do. The, uh, the automated car. I think this could be an epiphenomenalist what if. The body is the automated car, or whatever term we're using for that old-fashioned. And and the mind is the person inside the automated car. Yeah, okay, so you're thinking, you see somebody jump out, you go, oh, no. We gotta, you know, we gotta miss that, and then the car swerves around it because the car is programmed to do it. And you think, oh man, good thing that, good, good thing I considered doing this, right? Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I, I, I know that in uh, currently in automated cars, you're supposed to still be, yeah, sitting there with your hands on the wheel, presupposing that you have some control. And even in a regular car, there's always the possibility that steering wheel won't work or it'll slip, will turn the wrong way. I, any, you know, those for the automated versions, yeah, we, we like to think we make better decisions, but we probably don't. That takes us all into AI and lots of other topics that we can't go But just to stay with that model, uh, I, I, I think the epiphenomenalist is going to, is going to say, yeah, you're the person in the car. You can think you made a decision, but you didn't make any decision. Well, you made the decision to get in the car, but let's forget about that. <laughs> you're in the car. You wake yeah. up and you're in an automated yeah. car. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, do you... Let's not... We're not thinking of it from an epiphenomenalist viewpoint. Now okay. I'm just asking you directly. Yeah. Do you believe most animals are epiphenomenal... Epiphenomenalist beings. Uh-huh. That's a really interesting question because we often go to the animals again, don't we? Mm-hmm. I, I, I do not. Oh, I'm a cat person. <laughs> Had a dog I loved too, but I and I watch my cat far too much, and I perceive that cat making decisions on a frequent basis. Uh, maybe because it's addicted to catnip and it goes over and just starts digging on it and then uh, and then lies on that little scratch box that has a little catnip in it, okay. But then it gets up, decides to go lie somewhere else. Lie down here. No, let's get up here. Let's go lie down here. Until it finally finds a place, he finds a place on it. Uh, where he spends the better part of the day. Well, let's see. It's the Goldilocks thing then. I choose, no, nah, this was okay for a while, but it's not good enough. I can get better. Okay, I'll go over here. No, nope, that's still not good enough. Ah, the tabletop in the sunshine. That's perfect for me. Now, it, I, I don't think, I, I, I think there's more going on there than just. Yeah, so the interesting thing with animals right is yeah like you're saying i think what what makes it difficult is when you see the indecision right when you see a dog go to lay down and he spins around 17 times before he finally <laughs> lays down right you'd think that if it was just a brain the brain would say lay down <laughs> we're tired yeah we're tired let's go to sleep lay mm-hmm. down yeah but there's definitely some decision going on and then the dog at some point decides okay, now this bedding and this positioning is right for me to be comfortable to sleep. Mm-hmm. So the question is, well, could the brain do all of that without any input from the mind? Or, I mean, cats are a perfect example because cats are like just notoriously hesitant, right? Mm-hmm. If I try to get my cat to do anything, he just kind of looks and twitches his ears and moves his head. And, you know, like, it's like, come on, man, either come over here or don't, you know, like, what, what, what are you thinking about? Mm-hmm. And so... Where's the thinking happening? Is the brain doing all of the thinking thinking, and then going to make an automatic response? Or is there some measure of consciousness that's taking the information from the brain and then actually having a will to make a decision? I, I, I'm, of, I'm of that uh, ilk uh, about animals. I, I find animals much more sophisticated than, than little meat machines that have instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm no, I'm probably no use on that particular question because of, I, and I and I understand that we read things into animals all the time. We're anthropomorphically guided to do that. We we say of our cat or a dog, whatever he says or she thinks. We know no such thing, but but we're but we're looking at the evidence of the possibility and and the causality. And in that scenario, our mind is projecting something onto their minds. And then it feels like our mind sure is having an effect on our behavior towards them. Doesn't it? It does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. Yes. So, okay. So we've, we've talked about epiphenomenalism. I think we've done our due diligence in, in um, explaining it, looking at its foundations, examining some of the pros and cons. Now I'm sort of going to personally 
pick apart some things and I'll I'll just bounce them off of you. You know, I'll 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 lay out the legal disclaimer. I'm not a professional <laughs> philosopher, right? This is these my thoughts are only my own blah blah blah. So here's my thing, right? We have a lot of medical um a lot of medical knowledge nowadays. Let's take a mechanistic view of it, right? If we're looking at cars again, you don't drive an engine. You don't drive a transmission. You don't even drive a tire, right? You drive a car. Mm -hmm. And so when you put those things together, you have something that has motion, something that has a life of some kind. The human brain to me seems to be similar, right? You have an amygdala, you have a parietal lobe, you have a frontal cortex, you have a cerebellum. None of those things are something that operates in isolation, right? You need the whole thing together to have a human being with motion. And not necessarily. You can cut out pieces of it and still have a human being with motion. But it's it's affected in some way or another. But by and large, you need most of the structures of the brain in order to have something that works. So for me, rather than looking at whether something is purely epiphenomenalist or not, it seems to me, especially when we're looking at the cases for epiphenomenalism, right? These these reaction times in response to making decisions, these sorts of things. It would seem to me that the amygdala is an epiphenomenalist organ, right? But the prefrontal cortex is not. And I don't see an issue with either one of those statements because we have science to back it up, right? If you touch something hot, your fingers send a signal to your amygdala saying something dangerous is happening. We need to pull our hand off this hot thing immediately. We don't have time for this to go through all of the neural machinery mm -hmm. and weeds of the brain. Mm -hmm. We need to get that thing off. And you pull your hand back. You don't even think about it. As a matter of fact, me and my best friend were talking about this yesterday. We both work in factories. We were talking about factory accidents. Mm -hmm. And we both had accidents happen to employees where... They had put their hands into a machine, the machine had closed on their hands, and then they had hit the e-stop while the machine was closed on them. That doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense to do that. It would make it's more a sense. natural response. Right. Yeah. It would make more sense to wait for the machine to open and then pull your hand out. But that's not what the amygdala says. The amygdala says, danger. ouch, pain, danger, stop the thing that's causing it even if stopping the thing at the wrong time doesn't make any sense because it did that that signal didn't have time to make it all the way up into your brain and, and make some sort of rational decision. Mm. It was an automated response. Mm. To me, that's epiphenomenalist, right? And, you know, if you do these sorts of things, if you jump when you're scared and you do these sorts of things, that's epiphenomenalist behavior. I think that you can describe human actions purely in behavioralist terms in those automated responses, right? I think when you look into more complex reasoning, that's when the epiphenomenalism starts to fall apart a little bit, right? And so on the reaction time one, okay, well, sometimes it takes two or three seconds before somebody makes a conscious decision, but the brain's already in motion. Well, that's just the electrical current passing through all of the subconscious structures before it gets to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex aggregates all the data and says, this is what we're going to do, right? So I don't think that it's that the brain has made a decision before the mind. I think it's that 
the brain and the mind are the brain is gathering data and then the mind is translating that into an action at the time the action is taken mm-hmm. right so I'm, I'm just gonna lay that out there what what counterpoints would there be to that to that argument <clears throat> i was thinking of a couple <laughs> uh, because you laid it out very very well but but i'm thinking well the the heat thing as an example ha- has been talked about of course by not just medical people, but philosophers and some who are both. Uh, it's not just that you touch the hot thing. It's that your hand, oh, I'm sensing heat even before I get there. So there's there's a lot of flow of data happening. So sometimes, yep, you just slip and you touch the hot thing and you yank it off. Sometimes you're more aware and you preemptively strike <laughs> and i and i think that argues more for a mind again the very fact that we use the terms mind i'm of i'm of one mind i'm of I'm, a, I'm of three minds on this whatever this situation would be the brain may well aggregate the data as you described and and, and you go ahead and you do it and and i'm with you with i think it's a very interesting thing you've said because on the, the so-called lower level uh, maslow's chart uh yeah, that makes some sense. Yep, we just we we because we're automated. <laughs> we, it's, some of the things are just built in, so to speak. But for the higher functioning, the the, the mind just looms. Yeah, for yeah. Me. Yeah. So it's hard to deny epiphenomenalist elements of being human because mm-hmm. we don't think about breathing or our heart beating or you know our eyes blinking or these sorts of things. So there are definitely some things where, I mean, especially with a heartbeat, right? The mind doesn't influence the body in that regard. You really, you don't have any control over it. Mm -hmm. The brain and the body control that completely. And like I said, in some of these um, split second decision scenarios, again, the mind doesn't play any part because, you know, it's... (laughs) The electrical current can't get to the mind... Right. It can get to the brain, parts of the brain, but not the mind, which is funny, right? Because, like, you need the whole brain to make the mind. Where it's like the, the car, right? You know, when you start a car, you have a starter, that spins a brush that creates electrical current that brings all the electrical systems and the combustion systems to life. But the starter in a car is an epiphenomenal thing, right? The starter can work without the car working, but the car can't work without the starter working. You know, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's kind of interesting. My father would like that. He loves the car metaphors. It it's the qualia thing. uh, Something just occurred to me. uh, So we take our machine, uh, let's say. Our, our machine self. Uh, let's say it goes to the uh, to Letchworth Park or the, the Grand Canyon or whatever place you want. And you stop and you experience the sublime, which we've talked about. You experience awe. There's no use for awe. Oh, there's no use for the sublime. Well, there there is in a rich life, but, but you, know, you don't need that to survive, arguably. It, and let's say you're you're seeing El Capitan in the Yosemite, or you're, or you're seeing the gorge in Letchworth Park, Genesee River, whatever you're looking at, and you're just looking, and you choose 
I say you choose to look. It, it's, your, your body's not in danger, unless you're, you know, climbing the shale cliffs or something. Not supposed to. There are signs for that. <laughs> and if it were just epiphenomenal, uh, I'm not sure we'd even pay attention to the signs. Perhaps the brain would. But the, fa the, the fact of just taking in the moon or, or constellations or whatever it happens to be, just because, well, to me, in an epiphenomenal universe, there's no room for just because. That's where the determinism goes. Either that it's going to happen because it's going to happen. There's no use here. Hmm. But what data am I taking in that's going to be of any? Oh, that's pretty. Yeah. And so I, I think the epiphenomenalist view would, uh, is uh, in some ways very, and for me, um, in my limited understanding, uh, almost anti or, or counter aesthetic. Uh, it's, 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 it's smacks of all the arguments about, well, why are we teaching art because it's not useful or music because it's not useful? All these ugly arguments that people make, quite fallacious arguments. But why does everything have to be useful? Well, in an epiphenomenal universe, I suppose that's all there would be. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm thinking of one, I can't remember if I sent this to you or not, but it was a, a psychology study that really um, would give epiphenomenologists a hard time, which is where... They took somebody, they put a barrier up to their shoulder to hide their arm, and then they threw a blanket over their shoulder and put a fake arm on yeah, the other side of it. Sure that was, right? yeah, yeah. And so then, you know, the scientists conditioned the fake arm. They put a, they're petting the fake arm with a feather the same time they're petting the real arm with a feather and um, doing these different conditioning exercises. Then they start doing things like putting needles in the real hand, but not in the fake hand, and people don't react to the pain. Then they do the opposite. They'll hit the fake hand with a hammer out of nowhere and not the real hand and people will jump away, you know, and shout in pain, right? Mm -hmm. That seems to be pretty clear evidence that the mind has an influence on the body and, and, and action stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure listeners at this point are like, I've spent 46 minutes listening to this <laughs> podcast and these guys just told me that this argument's bunk, right? No, I don't think no, that that's it at all. I don't that. think that's no, it at all. No. Um, and like I said, I think that there's there's strong arguments for and against epiphenomenalism. But I think that kind of the the takeaway, right, is that rather than looking at this and saying, okay, well, this paradigm doesn't have any use, we'll throw it out the window. It's, it's a looking at it in contrast, right? Now, as philosophers, what you think is, okay, well, if I, if I don't believe epiphenomenalism, if I, if I don't believe that it's just the brain and the body acting, but there's actually a mind acting on it, how do I explain the mind? <laughs> where does the mind come from? Is it in, you know, and that's where I think that the, the interesting experiential experiments that will be coming up is, is trying to isolate that, right? Because that, that reaction time one. That's that's what makes me think that there's, you know, it. You have epiphenomenalist pieces to you, right? You have things that, where the brain and the body interact with no input from you at all. But then, like we were just talking about lately in the episode, we have times where it seems pretty obvious the mind is influencing our our mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, where do those things meet? 
you know? And I think with that animal argument, right, I think that that threshold of the epiphenomenologist part of the brain versus the, you know, the mind, there's a threshold there, right? Yes. And I think that with animals, we can kind of see it, right? Simpler animals, you can imagine there's much more of this epiphenomenologist piece to the brain and a much smaller piece of an actual mind. And then the higher order animals, you see more and more of a mind emerging until you get to humans and you say, okay, we like to think that we're all mind. We have this complete control over ourselves, right? <laughs> but the things this, then that, that's where this episode comes in, right? Is we, we talked about epi, you know, epiphenomenology for the first 40 minutes, taking it seriously exploring all the facets of the argument to make you think, well, man, there's, there's definitely something to this. And if nothing else, it, there is at least in part a truth to this, mm-hmm. but how far does it go before it morphs into something different? Yes. And that's, that's why we're here is to say, isn't this an interesting question? Mm-hmm. Ask the question yourself. See where it takes you. It's, it's, yeah, it's not about trying to, trying to prove something. It's, it's, or, or to say, well, you must accept this or that's all bunk. That's not what we're about. We're, hmm, think. You know, I, I, I have to, my father in law, long, long gone now, but, um, I, re- I remember because as, as his age was advancing and he, he needed some help, he would uh, ask me to uh, trim his, he had enormous eyebrows. They were caricature worthy eyebrows. And, and so he'd have me trim them and, or and sometimes with, with uh, fingernails. And this this man was had done incredible things, you know, uh, in in the sense of facing things. Uh, but you come anywhere near that finger, that finger with the fingernail trimmer, or that eyebrow with the, and he'd flinch back and say, "Ouch!" <laughs> I remember his my mother-in-law saying something to him about that, right? And, 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 and I, and, but just to look at it from what we, in the perspective of what we've been talking about, there was no ouch. There was no contact. Therefore, there was a decision being made based on past qualia. Therefore, it's likely to me that a mind <laughs> re, recounting previous experience anticipated something and made the body move. Hmm. The last piece to this puzzle that we'll cover um, is, do you think humanity's actions as a whole support or repudiate epiphenomenalism? <laughs> so let's look at it. There's really two ways to look at it, right? A social, a social psychology versus a sociology viewpoint, which if you're uninitiated, social, social psychology is talking about how an individual person operates within a group, whereas sociology examines how a group operates as a whole. Do you think that epiphenomenologist behavior um, is, do you think that that changes in an individual versus a group setting? Oh, you've just opened a door. <laughs> you said you weren't going to be bad for the podcast. I just set you up. I teed it up. <laughs> I, I okay. So, is it possible to see what a social 
group does, a collectivity does, uh, differently than what an individual does from the phenomenology, uh, from the epiphenomenological viewpoint. Yeah, and again, okay. looking at the animal kingdom, right? Yeah. If you look at a colony of ants, right, that's highly epiphenomenologist to me because they will do insane things. They'll build bridges out of their own bodies, right? They'll willingly sacrifice themselves for this group, right? So that's almost completely epiphenomenologist. There's no mind, right? There's a brain and a body connection within the context of a group. Right. So they're not willingly doing anything. They're just doing it. Yeah. Okay. So as opposed to a a pride of lions or something where you have defined tasks, you have a hierarchy, you have these things, right? Where do you think humans figure into this? Do you think that, (laughs) do you think that the epiphenomenologist part stays the same lessons increases based off of a group setting? I, this, I, I, I'm going to sound like I'm waxing cynical, and perhaps I am. I think, uh, given our current circumstances, I think it wouldn't be hard to say that seemingly, two levels, seemingly uh, people aren't using their minds clusters of people aren't using their minds for the best effect for society or for themselves. And so one might think, well, that's the body just doing its thing. And, 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 and no matter what you say to it, but it's, it's going to continue going on because the mind is just echoes from the body. Uh, and as an, just one example, perhaps that's that's what happens to somebody who refuses to get a, a, a vaccination because the body says hurt, 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 and and that echoes into the mind, and so the body says no hurt, no hurt, no hurt, and so the, some decision is made. I think it's more still sociologically understandable from the viewpoint of mind mind not necessarily uh, all aligning with all the rational data points but mind saying no i won't <laughs> uh, i i think the no i won't comes from a mind not from the body as a robot <laughs> yeah yeah because i think that um people are making decisions they're just like you said it, it, they're identifying different data points, right? They're using different sources of information to make decisions. And, you know, how they decide on what their sources of information are, what they consider reliable or trustworthy sources is what's determining their behavior. But I think it does still come back to mind over just a brain or... Now, there is, I think that there is some cases where there is an epiphenomenologist um, effect on groups of people, like a bystander effect, right? Mm. Um, if you have mm-hmm. a bystander effect, they've done studies where they've they've staged like these mock murders or beatings or whatever to see if people are going to react, and people don't, right? Mm. So, with that being a common thing, I mean, you you could still say there's room for mind, right? Because when they inter- interview people afterwards, people tend to say. Well, I thought somebody else was calling the police, so I just didn't do anything. Right, right? and that brings and that brings up the point yeah, because I don't I don't want us to to leave all of this with the idea that there is no such thing as mind at all. It's just that the the mind doesn't affect 
the body. The body affects the mind in epiphenomenalism. So, so in that case, you know, the, the, the mind could be saying, I want to act. I ought to do something. I, you know, and the body's saying, nope. <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason. Whether maybe, maybe what the brain is saying is, well, there's danger over there, and we don't want to expose ourselves to danger. And the mind is saying, well, but ethically, we ought to do something. Yeah, yeah. But, but if, the, if that doesn't happen then I think one could argue that there's an epiphenomenological thing that could be going on. Yeah, so I, I mean, that o- that opens a whole new conversation, <laughs> yeah. thinking about, because yeah. now what we've basically established is that the mind reacts differently in a psychology setting versus a sociology it, setting. It, it, it can, yeah. So now your, your mind, which up until this point we are saying is... Um, informed through through the brain um in fact other minds can affect how that mind operates right so yeah that's that's an interesting <laughs> thought we'll leave it there yeah, we'll probably yeah, pick it up again in the future i mean it seems we've had several discussions about mind body problems and each time there's new things that pop up and yes. new paradigms to look at and it, it's always fascinating so it was a great discussion and um Until next time, keep positive.